Welcome to Talk Radio's Drive Time. I'm Dan Wooten and we're covering the continuing coronavirus pandemic. Dan's Dispatch on Talk Radio. When will the out-of-touch millionaire champagne socialist running the BBC learn? In the midst of a global pandemic, and on the very day it's revealed 695,000 more hard-working Brits have lost their jobs, they unleash a revoltingly extravagant rich list, showing not a thing has changed at the corporation. Not a thing. Apparently we're meant to celebrate Zoe Ball. And the fact she's received a whopping £900,000 pay rise to £1.36 million. That's a pound, by the way, for every listener she's lost since taking over from Chris Evans at Radio 2. We're meant to chair the fact Gary Lineker is earning £1.75 million a year from our pockets because he's agreed to take a 23% pay cut over the next five years and will apparently start to control his highly partisan tweets, although I'll believe that when I see it. And that's just the start, you know. Fiona Bruce, she has somehow secured a raise of £195,000. That's just what her salary has gone up in the past 12 months to a total now of £450,000. Then there's Lauren Laverne, whose hosting of Desert Island Discs is considered an unmitigated disaster, yet she's seen her salary soar £90,000 to £395,000. Worse still is the damning fact that the total salary bill for on-screen stars rose by £1 million to £144.6 million, proving all this talk of frugality is just that. It's talk. What on earth is going on at that place? Remember, this is the same BBC that has said it is too cash-strapped to pay the licence fee for our greatest generation, those over 75, many of whom fought in World War II. There is simply no longer a justification for this type of extravagance. The public, we're already furious, by the way, about being forced to pay this £157.50p poll tax, and we will rightly no longer stand for this extravagance. As John O'Connell, chief executive of the Taxpayers Alliance, said today, BBC salary surges for loaded lovies fly in the face of ratepayers facing economic ruin. These bumper bee pay packets are picked from the pockets of pensioners and poor taxpayers who are fed up of forking out for the licence fee under pain of imprisonment. If these presenters genuinely believe that they can earn that money in the commercial sector, then I say... Now is the time to prove it. Go on. But as someone who has worked in this industry for many years, I can tell you the vast majority of these overpaid liberal lovies would find themselves immediately out of work. Talk radio across the UK on DAB Digital Radio and online. Drive time with Dan Wooden on Talk Radio. So do you agree with Grayson Perry, who says right-wing people are friendlier than lefties and that actually uh, lefties tend to be venal and closed-minded? It's Grayson Perry who said that. Um, He said they they have more antipathy to the opposition than the other way around. I would say the right on average are friendlier and more open. 0344-499-1000, my phone number. But let's debate this now. With our lefty, Benjamin Butterworth, who is the late editor at the I newspaper, and Tom Harwood, who is a right-wing writer at Guido Fawkes. Benjamin, you're just nastier, aren't you, on the whole, on the left? You know, I, I don't think it's about being nasty. I think it's that if you are on the left and you believe that the world doesn't work, it doesn't work for minorities or for the poorest in society, then that makes people much angrier. They want to change the world. They have something to be angry at, something to be passionate about. 
And I think that's why sometimes it can come across as not being pleasant or lacking a sense of humour. So it's okay to wish J.K. Rowling did? It's okay to wish Boris Johnson did because you're showing passion on the lift? No. And actually, I think, you know, on the whole, properly hateful people exist, whether they're right wing or left wing. But there is a group of people, us on the left, who if you carry the world on your shoulders, then sometimes that becomes quite heavy. And I think we live in a time with social media where tiny comments like being very nasty about J.K. Rowling can get blown out of proportion. And I don't think it's that the left. Well, it was trending. You you know, it's it's the left that dominates Twitter. And it was trending mm. all day yesterday, hashtag RIP JK Rowling. So I don't think that's been blown out of proportion. I think that was a despicable campaign launched by the left because they disagree with JK Rowling's political views. By the way, this is no fan of JK Rowling here. No fan of that woman. But at the end of the day, it's despicable the abuse she gets from the left on the daily basis. And it proves that the left are not friendly, I think. No, I don't think he does. I mean, of course, the irony here is that J.K. Rowling is on the left. So no wonder you don't like her. Maybe you could say that was quite an unpleasant comment to say you don't like her because of that. Well, I'm not wishing her did, am I? The context was that she'd written a book about a murderer. So that was the context to the word R.I.P. to the term R.I.P. But you know what? I think the truth is that right wingers can often be so relaxed because the world works for them. It's so easy. They don't need to care or worry. And therefore, they don't get wound up by the injustice. OK, well, look, we've got and to ask Tom. So, 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 Tom, Benjamin Butterworth says your life is just so easy. You get everything you want. And that's why you can be nice. Actually, lefties have the world on their shoulders, Tom. They're trying to save the planet. So, of course, they're going to be nasty. Well, I'm enjoying here how Benjamin didn't disagree with your premise that left-wingers tend to be seen as more nasty and, and less friendly and less open to debate. He just tried to give you excuses as to why that's the case, because I think it is self-evident that it's the case. Anyone who's been in a friendship group knows that sometimes there's that one bit more left-wing person who oh, might not want to go to that event, doesn't want to spend time with that person, might sound off after a few drinks about colonialism or whatever. You know, I mean, it, it seems to be that right wing people just have this greater ability and it's and it's in the philosophy of i don't know the, the sort of traditional liberalism that classical yeah. liberalism of being in favor of open exchange of ideas in favor of open debate being able to um absolutely fundamentally disagree with someone but respect their right to say their opinion and i think that's at the heart of what sort of the, the modern right mm. is about those classical liberal tendencies that so sadly have, have vanished from huge mm. swathes of the left now i would say that actually you can you can sort of chop up the left a little bit here because um blairites in the whole i've found or the people on the on the right of the labor party tend to be a bit more open-minded i've, I've always found it um it, easier to mm. uh, get along with people so this is the, the corbynistas sort of side so i think it's the corbynistas who have a bigger problem because yeah. they don't see political disagreement as a, an academic debate they see it as a moral one they think that people who disagree on solutions to problems that I think everyone agrees exist in society, uh, they see it as a as an actual question of whether you think there is a problem or not. So, I mean, someone on the left and the right can both see mm. poverty in society. Someone on the right mm. might say the best way to solve this is, is, is by growing our economy. And someone on the left might say the best way to solve this is to redistribute what we already have. And those are two perfectly valid uh, economical discussions. Okay, but John, let me let me play devil's advocate though. Owen Jones, a pin up boy of the left, uh physically attacked 
outside a pub in London mm. by members of the extreme right. I mean, that's certainly not friendly behaviour, is it? It was despicable behaviour. Oh, it certainly wasn't. That is totally despicable. But so fortunate we are that that extreme right, that sort of, I don't know, BNP tendency is is so vanishingly small in this country. We don't see uh, street attacks. We don't see militias um, of the right walk around, walk around in, the, in the way that um, no. we might have seen. And Tom, you're, you're threatened the all the time, aren't you? I see it online. You get a heck of a lot of nasty, vile threats and abuse thrown your way. Well, I think this was the great irony in what Benjamin was saying earlier, is if the world all works for the right. I'm sorry, have you been online? Have you looked at the cultural sphere that we live in? Have we looked at the academy or the or the media or, or whatever? These are all incredibly left-wing dominated spaces. And actually, I think it's one of the reasons why right-wing people tend to do a bit better at elections right now. If you're, on, if you're a right-leaning person and you're on Twitter, you have to constantly face a huge amount of challenge. And you actually get to hone your arguments mm. a bit better. You get to understand these positions a bit better. Whereas if you're on the left, you're in an echo chamber. And that's quite bad. Mm. And Benjamin, just finally to you, I'll I'll let you to respond to Tom. But isn't that the point, Benjamin? In fact, what you're saying is completely wrong. You're the one that gets to say whatever you want on Twitter. You're the one that gets everyone boosting you up and, and, and liking everything you say online. You don't have to suffer any abuse if you're expressing left-wing views in this country, Benjamin. Complete nonsense. And the truth is that no one has a monopoly on abusing or being a victim of abuse. That is the nature of the world we live in. Grayson Perry said that he thinks that the left is not as nice as the right. But he was visiting America when he did this, where Black Lives Matters protesters went marching for their basic rights as black people. And yet two white right wingers came out with guns. Do you get abused by right wingers, though, Benjamin? I mean, Tom does all the time. I do all the time. Do you get abused by people on the right? I do. I do all the time. And, you know, two years ago, I had to hide my replies from people that I don't follow on Twitter Mm. because it's so constant. That is a bad thing about our culture, that people with strong views feel that they can't compromise to Mm. knowing that others have different views. And there's no monopoly on either side. And the thing I would say is that I think that many right-wing people, the world does work for them. And I use an example, Stanley Johnson, the Boris Johnson's father. Now, I worked with Stanley a few years ago, and he is one of the most deliriously posh, relaxed people I've ever met. He is someone who couldn't care if you said something offensive because his life is so comfortable and easy. And to me, he is the archetypal right winger. I don't. You've never walked so in his shoes, though, have you, Benjamin? You don't know that Say his that life again. is easy. You, he may well just be a very nice, charming valet. He has always been uh, any time I've uh, encountered him. But that doesn't mean his life's been easy. You haven't walked in his shoes. I haven't. But I tell you what, if you're a multimillionaire, if you get put on all these TV oh, so shows... It's just about money, is it? It's just about money. That makes life much easier. Okay. And well, look, we've, we've, had, a, we've had a friendly, nice debate today. So at least uh, we're proving some of these extremists wrong. Benjamin Butterworth, the journalist and late editor of the I newspaper from the left, and Tom Howard, the right-wing writer at Guido Fawkes. Very much appreciate that. What do you think? 03444991000. Do you agree with Grace and Perry that right-wing people are friendlier than lefties? Sorry, Benjamin. 90 percent of folk in our poll at this point saying yes they do mary is in hemel hempstead mary do you agree with grace and perry that actually it's people on the right that are friendlier than lefties oh definitely i mean take for example the difference between um james o'brien and mike graham <laughs> yes you've just <laughs> summed it up right there 
Talk Radio. Drive time with Dan Wooden on Talk Radio. Let me bring in now Justin Matters, Labour's Shadow Health Minister. Justin, look, this testing scenario, you know on this show I'm always keen to avoid hysteria, especially when it comes to COVID-19 and public health. However, it does seem to be verging ever closer to a debacle. Yeah, it's very worrying. There's no doubt that um, the message we're getting up and down the country is is pretty consistent, which is that people are either being sent hundreds of miles away to get tests, sometimes when there is an empty testing station uh, in their own uh, town or, or, or very near them. And this afternoon, we're now getting messages that the system, the website is saying no tests are available pretty much anywhere in the country, which is incredibly concerning because uh, we know that if we can't test people, we can't get into the track and trace system, we can't keep a lid on the virus. So um, it feels that we're at a very critical point and and we absolutely need to get on top of this uh, as a matter of urgency. Matt Hancock, the Health Secretary, had this to say in the House of Commons today. I'll get you to react off the back. There are operational challenges and we're working hard to fix them. We've seen a sharp rise in people coming forward for a test including those who are not eligible. And Mr Speaker, throughout this pandemic, we have prioritised testing according to need. Over the summer, when demand was low, we were able to meet all requirements for testing, whether priorities or not. But as demand has risen, so we're having to prioritise once again. And I do not shirk from decisions about prioritisation. They're not always comfortable, but they are important. The issue I've got, Justin, is the government has been trumpeting for some time this testing capacity number, which looked incredibly high. And that encouraged us all to feel like, well, if we need to get a test, we'll be able to get a test. And clearly that's not the case. Well, the capacity number has has been um, a figure of of some uh, amusement for me because the last figures that we've got... Uh, were that the capacity was 374,000, yet only 225,000 te- uh, tests were actually processed. So on the government's own figures, there was a gap of about 150,000, and that's been a pretty consistent picture for the last month or so. So the capacity was there, the tests weren't being used, yet we, we're still in this position. And I've, just before I, uh, we've come on air, and I've, I've just check the um, latest stats on the, mm. on the government web- website and the, and the capacity figures for the last four days uh, are not available. Um, so I, I think we really just need Matt Hancock to say, actually, yeah, that capacity figure isn't actually a realistic figure. Or if there's another reason, you can come forward and tell us what that is. Um, just to say there are operational problems about giving us any detail doesn't give us a great deal of confidence that they've got, a, got an idea what the problem is and, and how they're going to solve it. And obviously, the government has been dangling this carrot that mass testing could be the way for us to return to normal life. So it's understandable that people are going to start assuming that, well, if I want a test, I can have a test. Well, uh, the government message all all along has been if you have symptoms, you should you should get a test. And uh, I think uh, most people are are doing that. I I know, but we heard a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, this talk of maybe you might be tested every day going into work. Maybe you might be tested every day before you go to school. Maybe you might be tested constantly at the airport. I know we're not there yet, but you can't really put this idea of mass testing into people's head and then try and tell them, well, actually, you could only take a test under certain circumstances. 
Well, I think I think the 10 million tests a day figure that was banded about last week by government um, was on their own admission based on science that they haven't actually uh, perfected yet. So I don't think it was very helpful to talk about that, particularly when uh, we're having so many problems with with, with the with the basics. Um, and um, are you, can you still hear me? All yes, right? we can. You're yeah. there. Oh, You're good. with us. Okay. I, I... Um, and 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 look, I think I think the the idea that people are getting tests when they don't have symptoms is is really not not right. Um, who is going to spend mm. four or five hours on the website every day refreshing it, trying to get a test, yeah. or drive hundreds of miles well, to get tested? It's not right. They don't it's, need it, it. it's not right. But Justin, I can understand. I actually have sympathy as to why people until now maybe thought that was okay because of the other messaging that's been going on. I just personally never hoped that we would be in a case again where anyone who wanted a COVID-19 test couldn't get it. I feel that these tests need to become, you know, like a pregnancy test. If you want one, you can get one. Absolutely. And um, I think, you know, we were we were heading in, in that direction. What's happened, though, is that um, for some reason the, the, the capacity isn't meeting uh, the demand um, when we know actually that there is unused capacity. I'm not quite sure what the reason for that is. Uh, and actually, we should have anticipated when uh, kids were going back to school and people were being encouraged to go back to work that there would actually be an increase in people with getting symptoms. They don't necessarily have coronavirus, but they will have other symptoms because people are mixing more and, and there will be more transmission of various uh, viruses. Mm. So the government... Uh, you know, we're, we're in a position really where they should have anticipated there would be an increase uh, in, in demand at this time and, and they should have got the systems in place to match that capacity with the demand. And as I say, we're, we're nowhere near that at the moment and we haven't got very long really to get that right. Talk Radio. Across the UK, on DAB Digital Radio and online. Drive Time with Dan Wooden on Talk Radio. Let's go now to James Dalingpole, the executive editor at Breitbart London. James, what do you make of this rule of six? And and do you think Boris Johnson has had some type of fundamental change to his former libertarian outlook as a result of this near-death experience? Yeah, yeah. Have you have you seen um, Lord of the Rings? Do you remember oh, the, I have. The, the King Theoden and yeah. Grima Wormtongue? I'm not quite sure who Grima Wormtongue is in this scenario, whether it's um, Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, or whether it's Dominic Cummings, who seems to have bought into this whole um, yeah, coronavirus scare, or, or who it is. But definitely, he's not, he's not the man that... Wait, he's certainly not the man that, that I hope would be leading the country uh, when I voted Conservative. I mean, he's just a, uh, he's just a husk, a dried out husk. I think he's, he's long since um, given up the job of being Prime Minister. He's just like a, a sort of dead Prime Minister walking, which is very sad. Um, but, but I think it's not just Boris's fault here. I think, I think, we've, we've, I think we've got a government which is caught in a, a city analyst described it as a death spiral he said i've seen this happen before to too many companies and when you get caught in a death spiral that's it this is what's happening now to the country you've got matt hancock who is absolutely zealously committed to his 
test and trace and, and to the to the notion that mm. the coronavirus is still with us and still deadly when it when it clearly isn't i mean hardly anyone's dying of it now and and most people are getting it you know suffering no more than they would uh, if they had a cold or even even yeah. asymptomatically. Well, 10 times um, people are now dying, 10 times more people are now dying from run of the mill, mill influenza or pneumonia. That's just the fact. Yeah. And we never we never locked down the economy. We never we never stopped people meeting their friends for even in bad flu years, did we? I mean, even in even in the year of the hong kong flu which killed many many more people yep. we didn't do anything like that we uh, even even i think in in spanish flu we didn't we didn't behave mm. like this it, it's it's crazy but could you not make the argument james that boris johnson is actually listening to the country he's seen where public opinion is and he's following it because actually most people are broadly in support yeah, yeah. of these draconian measures yeah I think he's he's certainly if if you wanted to, to be sympathetic, you'd say that he's caught in a vicious circle of stupidity of his own creation. The one thing the government has 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 been very successful at in this in this um, coronavirus alleged crisis is that their propaganda arm has been firing on all cylinders. I mean, it's been absolutely magnificent. The British people are more scared of coronavirus than any other nation on earth, I think, certainly in, in, in the developed, developed world. So propaganda, really good. So my counter to that argument would be, OK, your propagandists got us into this mess. They really, if they're that good, they should really get us out of it in the same way. And I think things like compulsory masks in supermarkets, which I don't do, um, no sane uh, informed person would. Has any um, has anyone tried to kick you out though, James? Oh well, I, I get what what I find is that it's 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 very foolish to start talking about oh I'm not buying into the pandemic or any of this kind of stuff. You don't do that. What you say is very nicely. You say I'm mask exempt, and it gives them the excuse to just say fine. It makes everyone happy. If you start arguing technicalities, then it, you're on a hiding to nothing. Mm. But yeah, it's my kid's birthday today, by the way. And and I've, I've said to them, if they do not um, celebrate with more than six people, they're not bloody well getting a present from me. <laughs> you don't want my, I don't want my children growing up to be the kind of compliant gimps of, uh, of a, a sort of fascist state. I want them to resist. So you're actively encouraging them to break the law? Oh, totally. I mean, I think it's a it's a bad law. I think they have a moral duty to break yeah. this law. I I cannot believe what's happened to this country, Dan. And I, and I think probably you feel the same way. I also think lots of people are coming round to this point of view. Yeah. I think there's a growing number of people who think this is crazy. It makes no sense at all. They're looking at the figures. They're getting better informed. Uh, I, I think this is going to come back to bite those involved in a big way. I can't see Hancock la- lasting. Boris has got to go. What disappoints me is that... Really? You know, so, potential- so you think Boris will go? Because there has been that rumour, obviously, strongly denied by number 10. Well, they're going to deny it, aren't they? Um, because because he would be even less credible once once it's, it's sort of formally announced that he's going to go. That's it. So I suppose he, what he's going to do is, is crawl on like a kind of... Uh, a sort of lizard that's been squashed and had its tail dropped off and is just crawling forward and he's just going to try and deliver Brexit you know, just so mm. that he can, he can go to his grave having achieved something 
And then when he's done that, they'll put him out mm. to grass. He'll be like an old racehorse. But whatever, that would have been a big achievement, part. James. I mean, that would have been a big, that would be a big achievement. And I actually wonder if we're going to get a second wind of Boris once the absolute nightmare of this pandemic is over, perhaps this time next year. Oh, Dan, you romantic dreamer, you. you I'm keeping the faith. I am keeping the faith, James. I am because, look, look, my theory on this is that the government are absolutely paranoid about the second uh, spike, which will inevitably come because, of course, we get a second spike of flu every year, don't we? There's cold weather coming. And I think by February, March... Sanity will prevail. Normality will resume. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not absolutely furious about it and want to uh, combust with rage every single day, James, because I do. I think the rules are absolute madness. I think the limitations on our civil liberties are absolute madness. But I, I can see from a PR point of view, given where the mainstream media is at with this, why they are fearful of any more deaths occurring. Uh, no, I, d- I asked my my um, city friend mm. how you get out of a death spiral. And he said, well, there's only one way. There's only one way the government can get out of this. Boris has got to go. Hancock has got to go. Everyone associated mm. with this disaster, this, this massive overreaction, mm. which has caused so much economic damage and so much physical harm to people. So many more people are going to die as a result of the lockdown. Oh, absolutely. And so on. Well, well, we've got this ticking cancer time bomb. We've got the mental health time bomb. And in, and in your scenario, James, presumably Rishi Sunak, who actually has been much more hawkish in terms of getting back to real life, even though he's had to obviously keep quiet publicly, yeah. given cabinet collective responsibility, He's in the perfect position to take over. I what Dan, I was team Gove just because Gove's a mate of mine and I think yeah. he's a very clever operator. But when I learned that Gove was the guy who pushed for, for this, the six, I know. Six, <laughs> he even ignored um, his brilliant I, wife. I mean, what was he thinking? I know. Um, yeah, I mean, I, Sarah Vine for Prime Minister. Oh, my God. That would be Margaret Thatcher Mark II. That, yeah, I, I that would back that. I would support that. dream scenario. <laughs> yeah. But given that we can't have Sarah Vine for Prime Minister, I think that I, I think suddenly I've become Team Sunak because he's very carefully distanced himself. He, as you say, he's a hawk on this issue. And I think the hawks are going to prevail eventually. They have to. Because the country's going to come around and say, we've been sold apart. This is awful. We cannot have this anymore. Radio Drive Time with Dan Wooden on Talk Radio. Let me bring in now. It's an absolute pleasure to have her back, Lionel Shriver, the best-selling author and columnist at the Spectator. And Lionel, I've been dying to hear all week what you make of this bonkers rule of six. I think you. All, I think you know already. <laughs> <laughs> I have. I have some sort of idea. Yes. Um, it's just not scientifically justified. Yeah. Uh, it's alarmist. And I find it baffling. Uh, if you look at the uh, fatalities and if you look at the hospital emissions, they're flat. And they're, you know, if you take a look at the, the graph and it, you know, it starts up, you know, in April, really, really high on both those yeah. statistics. And now it's just rumpling down uh, along the X axis, barely, barely above zero. And uh, all that's gone up is cases, but uh, the cases have gone up because testing has gone wildly up. There's a at least a two percent uh, false positivity rate, and furthermore, they're using tests that are overly sensitive. 
and therefore detect lots of people who only have a kind of um, viral flotsam in their blood. I have a feeling that's not the technical term, <laughs> but um, they're not infectious. Yeah. So a lot of these new cases just don't matter that much. Uh, they are uh, abundantly among younger people. And as long as we're not seeing people dying and also stressing the, the NHS's capacity, there's, it, it just, COVID just joins all the other diseases that we can get, that we do not close down society for, and we do not uh, retract people's civil liberties for. So why, Lionel, do you think the government has done this? What has happened to Boris Johnson? Has this near-death experience changed him? Or is he simply looking at public opinion and thinking, actually, it's quite popular to be quite draconian draconian at the moment. People are quite enjoying these very clear rules because they remain very scared, very afraid. Well, it it does become tempting to wonder whether people in government are enjoying their power a little too much. Um, of course, it's, it's not for us to necessarily impute internal states. So I can't know how Boris Johnson feels or what he's thinking, but the way he's behaving uh, is bizarrely alarmist. And you get the impression that, that they're so geared up for this second wave that, that something in them kind of wants it to happen. Um, Do you think? And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying these people are evil. Mm. <laughs> but at the same time, when you've been talking about the danger of something for so long, this is we've been talking about the second wave before we were nearly through the first one. Um, there's a way in which, you know, you don't want to look as if you were wrong, right? That's normal. Um, so... When, when you've got all these people on the record that there's, you know, there's almost definitely going to be a second wave. It could be even worse than the first. They don't want to get egg on their face. And so there's a way in which uh, it, would be, uh, it, would, it would serve their ego to see it happen. But this uh, goes against Boris right. Johnson's libertarian instincts, though, surely. Oh, I think we've all been pretty shocked with the way Boris has behaved through this pandemic. Um, it's so contrary to the instincts that really made him uh, prime minister and gave him a majority. Uh, after all, what was the big urge behind Brexit itself, but uh, toward liberty, you know, freedom from the tyranny of the EU, wanting to be able to make your own laws, um, so you would think the same impulse would lead to a, a light touch uh, during the pandemic and also an instinct to trust people, to be responsible on their own behalf and not have to bring in laws. I mean, that's one of the strangest things about this rule of six is that it's, it's not being left to your discretion. No. It's not a guidance. It's a law. Well, and, Priti Patel, and- the Home Secretary today, when asked, said that mingling with a few folk that you know on the street is a criminal offence and now cannot be done. Whereas if you were standing with them in a tube carriage with a hundred other people, you could talk to them. I mean, it's very nonsensical, but it feels like there's no longer any room for personal responsibility. There's no longer any room for common sense. And I think that's really worrying. 
Well, I'm afraid that what happens over time when you don't trust people and you just you try to micromanage their every interaction, uh, at a certain point, people have had enough and they stop they stop doing what you tell them to. Uh, even the British, who are very rule-based and law-abiding. I uh, just came across a, a poll this morning that said that um, 87% of the British poll said they weren't going to obey the rule of six law. They just weren't going to. Mm. And, you know, Would you obey happened. it? Would you obey it if you were here? Um, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm married with no children. And therefore, I would have to find more than four friends who were still speaking to me. So <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> I would be able to break the law. I'd have to go out and make some new buddies. It does work for antisocial people, doesn't it? You can no longer be with any more than five people. But look, I mean, I was a little, I was a little sobered to discover that this new law is not going to affect me. <laughs> I think, I, see, because for me, Lionel, I want to follow the law. I do. I really do. So I will respect this, but it goes against every instinct that I have. Um, I think you, I think you need to follow your gut. I mean, I, it's probably against the law to urge people to break the law. So I'm not going to do that on the radio. Um, but... I have, I'm a big believer in common sense. The British are always big believers in common sense. It's one of the things that's appealing about the British as a people. And it's, it's not that uh, breaking the law would mean everyone's going to have these coronavirus raids and go find somebody who's infected and, you know, and, and, and um, try to breathe in each other's faces. I don't think anybody's proposing that. But uh, if if a grandparent stops by and there are already six people in the house, I'm I'm not sure I would I w would think that most British people would not lock them out. No, but it's this it's this sort of telltale toxic culture that is now being encouraged with even the police minister saying in that circumstance you should phone the cops, which just makes no sense to me, and also. I don't think, Lionel, this is the way we're going to get through it either. I know you had a bit of opposite. You, you, you were quite opposed to some of our, uh, I guess, more quaint uh, ways that we did manage to pull together as a country in those dark days of March and oh, April, like clapping for the NHS that. and that type of no, thing. But it's not, better than blaming each other, isn't it? it? <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I think the lockdown was a big mistake. And I'm uh, much more of a believer in the Swedish approach mm. which so far is proving dead sound they're coming out of this smelling like roses and the uk is in a shambles i i just and it breaks my heart um so I, I just think the more we keep bringing in new rules i've lost track of how many different rules there have been well there's um, now the talk more... of a 9 p.m curfew all pubs and restaurants might have to shut at 9 p.m at some point but there, there is no epidemiological justification no. for these regulations. It's acting as if we are in the midst of a, or the dread second, second wave, but we are not, not in an important sense. We are not having huge numbers of people die on us. The hospitals are half empty, for Christ's sake. Mm. So, so what's this about? 
What do you think it is about, though? Because the problem is, Lionel, this is another thing that's really annoyed me. These regulations encourage conspiracy theories, don't they? Because people sit back and think, I actually can't work out what this is about. Is it about government control? And I don't believe the conspiracy theories, but the problem is it does play into the hands of those people. I mean, to to give uh, the government uh, benefit of the doubt, uh, we can assume that uh, they have heard all kinds of dire warnings because there is a sector of the scientific establishment. It's not, not the whole establishment by any means, but there's a small sector of the, of the uh, scientific establishment that is whispering in his ear that we could be facing an even worse uh, catastrophe than we did in late March and April. And no one wants to be responsible for their countrymen's grave illness and death. I mean, that, so it's, it's out of fear. I mean, after all, if you think about it, uh, the government has successfully managed to petrify the entire country. But yeah. does that not also entail petrifying themselves? I think they have. I absolutely think they have. Uh, look, just just quickly, Lionel, before before you go, uh, J.K. Rowling was twen- trending all day on Twitter yesterday with this horrific hashtag R.I.P. J.K. Rowling. She's been attacked once again uh, by trans activists and much of the left wing. This is because her new book apparently features a trans serial killer as one of her characters. What do you make of this response? Um, I'm really impressed by her bravery and I'm disgusted by the response. And, um, there's something fair weather friend about this. I mean, she's, she's been so admired, so lauded, and then suddenly she's evil incarnate. And that, that's ugly. And she has a right to her opinions. And I am astonished she actually included a, a, a a trans character who is anything but, you know, admirable and glorious. I mean, that, that, and I think it's important for authors to start breaking these unwritten rules. Um, just, just the way that the, the British public uh, might discover it's, uh, it's in, in independence. Um, that no, all, uh, minority characters don't have to be saintly. You can write about uh, about characters that uh, are very different from yourself. Don't obey the rules. I mean, I think for authors, it's the obeying of the rules that makes the rules real because they're not written down. And uh, you can still actually write a novel with any characters you want. And good for J.K., I, I'm I'm a, I haven't ever been a big uh, Potter fan, but I have uh, in in the last uh, in the last year I've sure become a big J.K. Rowling fan. Talk radio across the UK on DAB digital radio and online. Drive time with Dan Wooden on Talk Radio. 
Thank you so much for listening. I should tell you to subscribe to this podcast because in these times of national corona crisis, we're still going to be with you every day on Talk Radio, breaking news on the virus, bringing you the most important newsmakers with practical advice you really need to know and hearing your opinions too. I'm not allowing any hysteria, but I would love you to contribute and tune in live every day too for so much more on Talk Radio between 4pm and 7pm every day. Talk to you tomorrow.